Coming up in this podcast, hospitality sector challenges, regional hotel expansion, gold versus lithium, heritage issues in Pepe Grove, Pacific Energy and our special report on infrastructure. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Panel and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Matt McKenzie. Matt, uh, first up, a bit of bad news in the hospitality sector with well-known fish and chip chain Sweet Lips shutting some outlets and Tim Ho Wan closing its high-end outlet less than a year after launch. Yeah, Mark, there's a run of tough luck here happening in Perth in hospitality. It's well established, I think, at this point. There's been a lot of difficulty across the market. Beaufort Street is one place that there's been noted there's been quite a few closures there. Um, you know, we've we've expressed also that there's pressure in Yagan Square. So uh, John Corello from BRI Ferrier was uh, appointed liquidator to Sweet Lips uh, on Sunday. Uh, it's a quite a well-known, I think, fish and chips shop in WA. They've had outlets in places like Leaderville, Fremantle, Scarborough and Melville. It's been around nearly 25 years. Uh, in the interim, so the Fremantle and Leaderville stores have been closed permanently. Uh, the Melville and Scarborough locations are going to continue operating. Uh, this guy, Michael Waldock, who was one of the co-founders with Stephen Gangimi, uh, he was general manager at Kalis Brothers uh, in the early 90s. And in 2013, this place was named the best fish and chip shop in Australia. So, you know, uh, this is a, a well-known place. Um, sad to see it go. I'm particularly sad to see Tim Ho Wan go, Mark, because when it opened up, I said, I've really got to get some dumplings there, and I haven't, hmm. which is probably the part of the problem as to why. Uh, <laughs> they're a, a Michelin star-rated dumpling house uh, from Hong Kong, I believe. Um, they've still got a store open in Melbourne, but uh, they had one in Sydney in 2015. They closed it in 2018. So that's an interesting one, because that was, uh, as I recall, when that place got opened here, a lot of people were quite excited, like, oh, you know, it was like Perth coming of age that was like more significant yeah. than Elizabeth Key or anything like that. But, uh, yeah. Well, we've had happening. a bit of that, right? Right across retail, we've had, you know, major retailers open up here. I mean, in the peak of the boom, there was quite mm. a lot of, lot of luxury brands. A lot of them have pulled back. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, some major retail brands come in uh, and then disappear shortly afterwards. So I guess uh, I, I'm curious as to, you know, I guess the background to this, is how much are groups testing the water? You know, is Perth big enough? They might be operating on old data. You know, the data, you know, if you're operating globally, oh, look, you know, you see something that you see a trend, whereas locally maybe that mm. trend is Just is old it. news, yeah. Mm. Um, but it's also, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scale and there's a, a level of wealth. Well, we should be in that market. And uh, it doesn't always work out that way. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm also intrigued on the hospitality side um, you know, noting Sweet Lips there. So Sweet Lips is a good example. Is that local trading conditions? Is it, you know, running five, a chain of fives way more difficult than running a chain of three? Mm, well, I think it's four. Or four. Okay. So, you know, like sometimes groups just get too big yeah. and find it too hard and they have to, and, and it can put them under, or in this case, you can retract. It can be around rents. But I would say, uh, you know, around uh, even noticing across the road from us here in Newcastle Street, mm. you know, a new restaurant's just opened across the road from a place that shut a couple of years ago. Right. I've seen renewal in a number of places around Northbridge when I walk through there, and there's stuff going on in the city. So <clears throat> it's not all bad news. I think it's just 
it's it's a very competitive time and you've got people who are sitting there they've got old cost structures probably leases that are pretty hard to meet yeah. versus some empty space someone comes in they want to do it and they can do it more cheaply with a cheap lease with something that's maybe more contemporary mm. lots of challenges out there very valid comments mark and it is interesting to consider uh, I think a few weeks ago we looked at some of the insolvencies data and it was actually quite good in WA. It was better than it had been in some considerable time. But the, yep. the, the sectors that were worse were sort of the retail hospitality and the construction contractors. Yep. Um, and you do make a good point. Each of these individual circumstances, I'm sure, are very different. Uh, but I guess the overall trend there is a bit concerning. Look, final comment on that. You know, rising tide floats all boats. Uh-huh. And, and at the moment, there's no rising tide. There's a lot of hands in pockets. People are very... Uh, they've not got the confidence to spend. We know that. So hospitality is always going to be tough in that kind of environment. Um, now, Matt, uh, I found that, I thought this was a, a fabulous story. The Hilton is injecting new life into regional holiday destinations by rolling out three new hotels across WA. That's right, Mark. So Dan Wilkie had uh, this story earlier this week. They're going to be, they're rapidly building this portfolio in regional WA with new properties expected to open in Kalgoorlie, Karratha and Bustleton by the yeah. end of next year. Uh, so there you go. And this is... This is fascinating, I guess. It's almost very different from what we've been hearing uh, about tough times in regional towns. Perhaps there's something to be excited about. Perhaps people at Hilton are thinking things are popping up and getting better. Or perhaps the people at Hilton may be even looking at old trend art. Who knows? Well, no, and I, you know, just whilst you're going there, yeah. it's DoubleTree brand, right? So yep. it's kind of like it's not their high-end brand; it's a bit more of a business brand, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they've just put two in in Perth, so mm. they'll have a, you know, I guess these decisions might have been made some time ago, but you know, you don't launch this stuff unless you're confident, do you? No, absolutely. Uh, they're investing sixty-five to seventy million between the two projects, uh, three projects rather. Um, and I think uh, Pacifica Developments is the developer. Mm. Uh, John Zendler told Dan that uh, the developments would be complementary to some of the infrastructure being rolled out under royalties for regions. So there you go. Yeah, look, and I guess three very different uh, positions there. You've got Karratha, which is really... Five hotels. Yeah, well, you know, and it's a, it's a resources town, and, and, you know, I guess the, the visitor people will be those, you know, people going to work on oil and gas or in mining. And potentially, I suppose, a, a few a few grey nomads wandering through and wanting mm. a slightly diff, slightly better than a caravan for the night, maybe. Yeah. Um, Kalgoorlie, look, business centre as well. Uh, needs Kalgoorlie's been needing something to change there for a while, so I think this is very good news for Kalgoorlie, where, mm. you know, Kalgoorlie has become more of a FIFO town than it used to be. So maybe there's some similarity with Karratha there. But um, but it's right on the golf course, and they've been wanting to do something around that golf course. It's been talked about for, you know, 20 years, for right. my collection. Um, and then Bustleton, well, that is really tourism land down there. Yeah. and uh, That'll and go I, well, you would have thought. Well, yeah, but it's, you know, again, and I see mentioned that waterfront at Bustleton has been really well done, and it is. I was down there just a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's it's fantastic. Around that jetty area, they have, they've really made it a great place. Um Anyway, all good news, good news for the regions and good news for tourism because all the hotel development we've seen to date, all the major stuff has been in Perth where there's almost an oversupply, so it's fabulous. Um, now, Matt, iron ore hit $123 US a tonne earlier this month, um, settled back at still about 120 and that's its best for at least five years. But perhaps for listeners, there's a more interesting commodity story in the, the gold versus lithium. 
Yeah, this is an interesting little contrast that I've picked up this week looking at a couple of the things we've written. Uh, on Friday, last Friday, the gold price touched another all-time high, and it just it keeps hitting Australian dollar all-time highs. Um, $2,040 per ounce uh, it reached, um, and that was you know only a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a couple of months now. Time flies, doesn't it? We were reporting that it had hit $2,000 Australian for the first time. Um, so there are a lot of forces out there that are pushing up the gold price. There's a bit of uncertainty, I think, around you know what's happening with the trade war, what's happening with Brexit, all these sorts of things contribute. A dollar going down too, uh, which yep. is unusual in a time when when commodity prices are rising. Mm. We're seeing a dollar down. That's very true. Um, and I guess the one other thing on that front is something I've mentioned in here before. Gee, there are some money supply issues that I think are looming on the world, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, <laughs> by contrast, uh, lithium, uh, there's, a, there's an extended supply glut. Um, and we've spoken about this a bit in here and, and how this has impacted uh, um, some of the refinery developments overseas and things like that. Um, sorry, I should rephrase that. Some of these refinery developments overseas are being delayed, yes. so the demand for these uh, for spodumene concentrate, which comes out of the rocks basically, is a bit lower. It's lagging a bit behind where people thought it would be. And uh, do we know the refineries are being delayed because uh, the overseas ones or the mm. ones here? Yeah, I'm, overseas. I'm not I'm not familiar with what's happening okay. in China, but I think my interpretation was from just what I've read, and I, I wouldn't say that I'm definitely. 100% sure on this, but the interpretation is a lot of this technology is, is reasonably new, and it's a bit like when you first started doing LNG plants or whatever else. Uh, I think uh, what they're doing with Tianchi, for example, in Kwinana, as I understand it, is like uh, going to be the biggest such facility in the world. Um, and obviously there are other places trying to also build these things at scale. I don't think it's been done at this scale before. That's my interpretation. Yeah. Um, so look at you know, Pilbara Minerals as an example. Um, they produced 64,000, basically, tonnes of concentrate for June quarter. Um, they only shipped 43,000 metric tonnes. Um, why? Well, the company said construction of chemical conversion facilities by offtake customers General Lithium and Langfang and Gangfang was proceeding slower than expected. So that's the problem there. Yeah. Um, another one, Atira Resources, Alita rather, Resources, they didn't ship any spodumene from their Bald Hill mine, um, so they've got about 40,000 metric tonnes uh, you know, in the bank, if I can use that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Interesting because, you know, every metric is saying battery, uh, you know, demand is mm. is accelerating and going through the roof. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating area, but, you know, maybe our production here has just got ahead of the ability for people to make batteries and maybe the battery demand just hasn't quite hit that hit that, you know, people are trying to get ahead of the battery demand as well. Well, that's true. I mean, a lot of the uh, electric vehicle manufacturing capacity, I think, is going to come on, you know, over the next decade, right? So it, it's still, there's a little way to go on this. And if you look at the Australian, the WA market, I think uh, I think there were less than 100 electric vehicles sold in this state so far this year. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. not happening just yet. We're not leading the way, you don't think, Matt? Well, not in buying them. <laughs> no. <laughs> Funnily enough, I'm hopefully planning to go up to China on a, a trade delegation in October, and, and we're going to go to an electric car maker, mm-hmm. and as well as some other uh, electronic equipment makers, or electric equipment makers, where they'll all be using batteries. So I'm I'm kind of intrigued by what we're going to learn there at the uh, at the manufacturing end as to what they think about it all. Um, and by the way, I'm going to throw an ad in there. If anyone wants to join me, I'd like to welcome. join you, Mark. Yes, you may well yet, Matt. Um, 
but it is uh, we're uh, you know if anyway get in contact with business news and we can uh, help you if you want to come along um now bring it right back to uh back home. to back to home yes <laughs> peppermint grove has been criticized in the supreme court over heritage issues yeah, this is uh, fascinating. So they've apparently mishandled uh, the listing of some heritage properties, particularly a very prominent house on the Swan River foreshore. So uh, a guy named Lyndon Brown took the action. He owns a Queen Anne-style bungalow at 52 The Esplanade. Um, I believe his family actually established Signet Bay Pearl, so there you go. Uh, Gail Archer said there were a series of failings in the way the, way the Shire had handled the property specifically and its heritage lists. One about 160 houses that have been entered on the Shire's municipal inventory. So uh, basically what happened is Mr Brown approached the Shire uh, to change the category of the property to make it easier to redevelop. Um, The Shire said no, um, but they didn't provide a particularly good reason as to why. Um, So there's a bit of back and forth over this for some time. Uh, You know, the Shire sent a letter to the owners of all the properties and said uh, it wanted to establish a different sort of a list. Um, and the court found that the, the Shire had failed to provide the reasons for the proposed listings for those that weren't on there, uh, failed to evaluate whether the properties on the municipal inventory met the prescribed criteria. So there you go. Yeah, well, look, heritage is a big issue in, uh, in suburban Perth, especially in those western suburbs where there's a real conflict between, you know, some homeowners want things to stay the same and some obviously buy a house and they want to change it to how they want mm. and uh, you know and, and it, there's a there's those property right issues where people feel Look, I own the asset I'll do what I want with it versus other people who feel like well what you do with your house affects the value of my house yeah. and, and, the, and the, the value of the area. So it's always pretty fascinating. And, and, you know, and someone coming and putting a heritage listing on your house can be, you know, well, can mm. be pretty hard. I mean, that obviously many times has costs, not just in the value of the house, but keeping things maintained. I'll give you an example of this, Mark. I'm involved with an organisation in the city which has a reasonably old uh, building, let's say. Yeah. And I think the building's been fixed up or whatever and changed or whatever else. But they've got an elevator in there from, I don't know when, like, a, let's say 100 years ago. It's a very old elevator. Mm. It's a heritage list. So it would have elevator. been called a lift back then. It would have been a lift, yeah, but it still would be a lift <laughs> in some ways. It's a very old lift. Um, it's so old, right? You can't use it because it fails the safety rules. Yeah. You can't fix it because the lift is heritage listed. So they've got a lift there at the front of the building, basically, closed off. You can't do anything. It's like art. It. How, how absurd. Yeah. Anyway, that's my view. Well, there must be a way. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, back on track. Pacific Energy Directors are expected to back a $422 million bid from the Queensland Sovereign Wealth Fund, QIC. Yeah, the Queensland Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's an interesting one. Mm. Uh, it goes to show that this area of remote power, and that's where Pacific Energy is specialising, uh, it's, it's still a growing industry. Um, you, you see examples. I mean, recently these guys won a contract at, at the Jaguar mine for, for power provision. So, uh, obviously, there's people out there that see a lot of potential for this. Uh, so, Pacific shareholders are going to be paid $0.96 cents per share by QIC, uh, and they're also going to receive a, a small $0.1.5 cent per share dividend. It's about a 35% premium to uh, Pacific's last traded price before they went into, uh, went into a trading halt. Values the place at about $422 million, uh, or values the equity rather at $422 million. and the uh, directors, I understand, intend to recommend shareholders accept the takeover offer. Now, the other interesting thing about this is we do hear a rumour that there's a Canadian wealth fund, I think uh, OP Trust is what it's called, uh, that is potentially also been considering making a bid. So could there be a bidding war for Pacific Energy? We'll see. 
Well, you can only hope so. Uh, that's always good news for shareholders, isn't it? Um, although you never want people to pay too much over the over the odds for utilities because inevitably that means they, they don't get the return on them and they can't invest in them. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's been a you know Pacific Energy was a really interesting company that put together a whole little you know a really put together a whole uh, suite of assets, portfolio of assets that has become quite a sub- substantial power generator in the in, in the region. Um, now, Matt, our special report this week is on infrastructure, mm. uh, specifically a big potential pipeline in road and rail projects. Yeah, so there's three main things that Dan Wilkie sort of looked at in this feature. Uh, there's a lot of positivity out there, even though things have been tough in, in recent years, as we know. Uh, one of them is with regard to local contracting. So we've spoken to uh, some people, for example, from Giorgio Group and the Civil Contractors Federation, and they're quite keen to change the restrictions around, or rather they're, they're keen to change the way that work's packaged. Uh, think of the, the Thornley-Coburn rail link and the Yanship rail line. Those two things uh, are going to be bundled together in a contract, a very mm. big contract, let's say about a billion dollars. Um, and you might say, why? Those are very different projects. They're just rail lines, different parts of Perth. And the answer is, the state government wanted to amalgamate these contracts to get uh, more interest from bigger players. And what some other people in the market are saying is, well, let's not do that. Let's break down the size of the contracts yeah. so we can have more local guys participate. More digestible for the locals, yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's merit, I guess, in, in both arguments. Um, the, other, the second thing, uh, Westport, what's happening with that? Mm. Um, and I think we're going to get a resolution on that at the end of the year. So Dan's gone and... Uh, uh, got a bit of a vibe about where that's all going. They're whittling down a lot of options from about, I think they started with, you know, let's say 200 or something, and they're, they're sort of slowly going through that process. So that's that's quite an interesting uh, piece of work to go on there. And we're talking about it going ahead or not, or we're just talking about what it looks like? Yeah, what it looks like. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to know just yet whether it's going to go ahead. And my suspicion is that it will be a little bit further off than some people perhaps anticipate. Um, and then the third thing is something we've talked about a bit, uh, it looks like there's going to be a bit of a shortage of labour uh, with all these mining projects going on up north that are in the pipeline. Uh, then down here you have you know things like Metronet, a lot of new kilometres of rail lines being added, um, some road projects as well. Um, and there's some thinking in the industry that there may well be a shortage of people. And what could be particularly difficult about this time round is we can't get them all from interstate because there's lots of stuff going on interstate as well. So yeah. it'll be a and challenge. it's more difficult to bring them in from overseas because we've effectively made it more difficult for people to come in on uh, you know working visas. Mm. So yeah, that's a, that's a real sticking point. Um, and you know, look, I'm going to wait and see. We've been hearing about skill shortages now for well more than a year or two. Mm. Well, I'd say a year, year and a half. It's been quite an issue. It's very specialist around those major projects. But, uh, you know, it's worrisome because really we need to, you know, if if you're in the property and retail games, you want to see people coming back into this market. And uh, you're right, they're probably not going to come from the east, Uh, especially not if they came from the east last time and uh, (laughs) found themselves in a high-priced economy without a job. Uh, Now, Matt, you've done our latest Great for the State uh, on disruption. Yeah. Tell us about it. This is exciting, Mark. I mean, we're, what we're thinking about is how will Perth, how will WA look different in 10 or 20 years' time? And there's a few different things we've, we've thought about, you know, what's happening with drones. Uh, we've looked at some of our most successful female entrepreneurs, Melanie Perkins being a great example, even though she's moved into state. Um, but two things that are big, healthcare and transport. 
And in the next 20 or 30 years, people in WA might witness the, the end of petrol, the end of driving, and potentially even the end of car ownership. So we talked a little bit earlier about electric cars, and that's something which isn't really taking off just yet. But certainly it looks like within 10 or 20 years they'll be very, very popular as prices come down. Uh, we've also looked at autonomous vehicles. So these are vehicles that are driven without a driver, basically, mm. driven by a computer. Um, incredible, incredible stuff. And what's WA's part in that? What's great for the state about that? So there's a couple of examples here. Um, we, we all know what's happening up north in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles on you know, the rail lines at Rio Tinto and yeah. the trucks and such. Um, but RAC did one of the world's first trials of autonomous vehicles on public roads. Yes. And that was with the Intellibus down in South Perth. Curtin University is also doing some uh, some trials with a bus on campus. And they move around autonomously. And there's a bit of research that goes around around these things. Um, the interesting thing about all of that is, uh, even though we're doing well up north and we're doing well with these trials here, uh, the regulatory system's not ready for autonomous vehicles. And there's, they're no. probably a little bit further away than you might think. They're probably at least 10 years away. Uh, but the driving code, for example, mentions driver. If you want to import a car, it mentions having a steering wheel and an autonomous vehicle doesn't necessarily have one. So yes. <laughs> all that to think about. Uh, the third thing about uh, not owning cars, um, the idea is you'd be familiar with Uber or Uber Pool. Uh, on a mass scale, uh, perhaps the, you know, the, the solution to having a big bus that goes through the hills of Kalamunda picks up two people on a massive route. Well, what people are saying is, Maybe we could have mobility as a service. And this is something ROC's thinking about a little bit, or, or looking at, I should say, and something the people at Curtin are thinking about, uh, where you have sort of a more integrated transport network where you use a, a computer to work out what to send, what sort of vehicle to send where, and how to map out people's routes um, much more efficiently. Mm. That's great. The other one on healthcare, telehealth, artificial intelligence, these things are going to have a massive impact. We spoke to uh, Yogasan Kanagasingham, who... Uh, was an Australian of the Year finalist a few years ago. What he's doing is amazing. So you get an eye, um, or you look sort of deep into an eye, you get an image in there, um, and you can use artificial intelligence, use a computer with a lot of training uh, to work out whether the person has, you know, an eye disease, basically, uh, whether they've got a diabetes problem that might lead to an eye disease. Potentially, you can use it to spot Alzheimer's or heart disease, and you can prevent these problems arising. Um, and it's a massive thing because if you think about it, we've only got a certain number of ophthalmologists in WA. They can't, you know, if you're in some remote community, then you really can't get to an ophthalmologist very easily. You've got these huge queues and all the rest of it in order to get the service, whereas you could do it on a, on a potentially a phone or, well, that might be a long way away. But you can, you can have a little product for a GP that can take an image in your eye yeah. very cheaply, very easily. And then if you've got a problem, then you visit the ophthalmologist. So it's bringing, I guess, eye care to, to more people. It's a wonderful thing, preventing blindness, we hope. so. Brilliant. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it in depth. Thank you, Matt. Eddie Hager was appointed to the role of Nickel West President in 2015 with a mandate to execute a business turnaround of the asset. Nickel West's subsequent transformation led to the creation of a lean, high-performance and innovative culture focused on value creation. Join us for breakfast in September 27 to hear how the BHP Nickel West Asset President led Nickel West through those challenges and discusses the future of its mining operations. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.